So I'm sure at least some of you here are unsure about today's service. Maybe some of us, the more optimistic among us, think, yeah, this is going to be great. And then there's the others, maybe the more straightforward among us, that sit there scratching their heads going, no, I'm not so sure about these teenagers, man. They didn't go to years of seminary. They don't know what they're talking about. But you got a choice. You can either choose to have a positive outlook on this sermon, this service, this Sunday, or you can take a slightly more skeptical and doubtful outlook. For our sake, I hope it's the former, obviously, but either way, you must choose how you want to view today, just as in your real life, you must decide whether to view the world as a whole in a positive or a negative light. We can either turn toward the meaning inherent in the life God has given us, or we can retreat into the corners of a world which, let's face it, is oftentimes dreary and flawed. Now, obviously, God wants us to find that meaning and avoid that despair. But that initial action, that initial step from chaos into order and meaning can be difficult. And this is one of the trends we see in Ecclesiastes. The world is flawed, yes, but there's light at the end of the tunnel, God. But when we read Ecclesiastes, that light at the end of the tunnel, that meaning, that purpose, is probably not our initial thought, is it? We're filled with images and ideas of wickedness. We hear the words meaningless repeated over and over again by the teacher. Most of the gloomy descriptions of life's events are followed by the word meaningless or the phrase, life is meaningless, completely meaningless. And when the teacher says these things, describes these things in this way, we almost have sort of a visceral reaction, a sort of cringe to the idea of no purpose. We think to ourselves, that can't be right. There's no way that's what he's saying. But that's the point. By cringing on the words of the page, we're realizing something. We are realizing that's what's being described as flawed. We are knowing that it is wicked. And that tells us that we know good from bad. By even being able to recognize and comprehend the apparent meaningless, we recognize that there is meaning. If there is no meaning, wickedness feels just the same as righteousness. But it doesn't, does it? If there is no moral compass, no purpose or order to creation, those descriptions yield us no emotional response. But they do yield an emotional response. So in a twisted way, by the teacher's dreariness, we are able to recognize the light of God. But what we tend to see in Ecclesiastes 12 is some slight deviation. Not in the mood, don't worry, that'll stay sufficiently depressing. But what we begin to see is a change in the tone of the author. And that's because Ecclesiastes 12 is an end. A final piece of wisdom that the teacher is trying to convey. If we didn't get it in the first 11, he really wants us to understand in the 12. And so he shifts. He becomes more direct. And in fact, he starts out telling us a series of things we need to do right out of the gate. The first line is, don't let the excitement of your youth cause you to forget God. Notice, he's not saying to forget the excitement of your youth, but rather don't forget God and your excitement. You see, God still wants us to enjoy our lives, 
and so does the teacher. The teacher in earlier ecclesiastical passages urges us to eat, drink, and be merry, but he wants us to do so in a way that honors God. And that's one of the next commands he gives us a few verses down the road. Honor God. And we need to honor God before we're unable to do so anymore. Before, as he puts it, our grinders fall out, our knees give up, and we are unable to speak and think clearly. But interspersed between these dark thoughts and direct appeals is another command. In fact, the same five commands and eight verses. Remember God. Remember. Kind of seems a little bit casual, doesn't it? I forgot something at the store. I need to remember it next time I go. It's not the word we might use when we're describing the omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe. But I think the teacher has a very intentional point behind the simplicity of that word, remember. All he wants us to initially do is to perform the simple act of remembering God. Sure, it can be hard a lot of times to worship and obey God in certain ways, but we need to take the first easy step. Now, remember him over time and we will grow into our faith. Let's not wait until we're close to meeting him to take the easiest step. Let's not squander all those years of potential meaning we could have found in him. And remembering is an easy thing. Everyone can remember. Everyone can remember God. And therefore, everyone can worship and remain faithful to God. So as we can see, the teacher is really driving home the point. Earlier, he shows us meaning in a world full of misery. He shows us meaning through meaningless. And now all he wants us to do is to seize that meaning at this very moment. But notice the teacher really only focuses on finding meaning in this life. Yes, he mentions how the spirit returns to God, but he leaves it that. He doesn't go any farther. And when the teacher implores us to find God in verses 2 and 3, before we are unable to see the light in creation anymore, he's not simply talking about the physical light of the earth. He's talking about the eternal glory and light of God. But the teacher doesn't connect that eternal glory and light of God to the salvation of your soul, does he? So meaning's not really solved then, is it? If it only extends a few decades, it's not truly meaningful. But luckily for us, God fulfilled that emptiness, that partial meaning with Christ, the way, the truth, and the light that grants us the ability to experience the light of God forever. And through him, we maintain, we maintain and find eternal meaning in the light of God 